At the end of this year, we'd like to wish everyone a very, very happy holiday and all the best for 2019. Everyone be safe and happy during this holiday season. Here's to you. See you here. Episode 59 of See Here Podcast. Morris is my name. I don't have my compadres with me. Tim isn't here because when we actually recorded most of this episode, we finished at about three in the morning and I was very keen to get to bed. Haven't had a chance to arrange to record this intro together. And Bernie's not around because he's lying in bed sick with a cold and he said he sounds like Barry White. Now, I don't know why he thinks that's a bad thing. I reckon it would have been quite cool to have him on the podcast sounding like Barry White. I don't know, maybe he's more of an Isaac Hayes fan. Anyway... I'll do this intro nice and quick for you. What you're about to hear is an interview that Tim and I had the other night with the wonderful director Alan Arkush, director of such wonderful music films like Rock and Roll High School, Get Crazy and The Temptations, amongst many other non-music related things. Now, we speak a little bit about his own films because he's a director and we want to speak about his films, but we focused a lot on his time as an usher at the Fillmore East because that was obviously something he was very, very passionate about. We speak a bit about Joe Dante's project, The Trailers from Hell, and we also do get to speak about some of his own films and we speak about some other rock and roll films that he loves. We are a music film podcast, so the focus very much is on rock and roll films in this interview. So, we really hope that you enjoy this. It's now five years since we started the See Here podcast to talk about music-related films and a fifth birthday present that would be better, I cannot imagine. So sit back, enjoy yourself, and I'll come back at the end of the interview to talk with you about what we're going to be having in January of 2019. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to See Here. Episode 59 of See Here Podcast, and Tim and I are absolutely schwitzing. We are so excited because on the other end of a Skype connection, we have in New York, not in Los Angeles, he's on a trip to New York, the wonderful director, Alan Arkush. Welcome to See Here Podcast, Alan. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here. We're worldwide on this particular uh, episode. We, we are. Oh, yeah. We are. Actually, I'm, I'm feeling like I missed an opportunity there. I should have introduced you as uh, a longer lock, 
<laughs> oh, you saw my um, video memoirs. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe get into that in a little bit. But sure. why we've gone and asked you onto the podcast is because we've been listening to your appearance on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, plus the videos that you've been putting on the Trailers from Hell website. And you're a huge fan of the history of music-related films. And we'll obviously be getting into some of your own music-related films. But I wanted to start off that you'd gone and said that A Hard Day's Night was the film that made you want to become a filmmaker. And it sort of seems unusual because we hear so many stories from musicians who say, I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show or whatever part of the world they were in, they saw the Beatles and they said, that made me want to pick up a guitar or made me want to get a set of Ludwig drums or something like that. But you went a little bit different. You said, I want to become a filmmaker. So what was it about A Hard Day's Night that appealed to you from a storytelling perspective as opposed to becoming a musician? Well, I made that analogy quite on purpose because having been in 10th grade, 16 years old, the night that the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, because the next day everyone wanted to be in a band. I was aware of that. When I started doing my uh, video memoirs and looked back at it, I realized in that context what it felt like. Mm. Now, I had loved the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and I was quite excited. And I had their records and by then I probably had heard the Rolling Stones and I was listening to Dylan and I had gone to the Lee Theater to see Hard Day's Night at the Lee Theater on opening night. I was playing my records a lot and driving my parents a little crazy playing the same records over and over again loudly and I was so taken by Hard Day's Night and my father and mother were very interested in the visual arts and in movies and and, uh, they also went to see a lot of foreign movies and uh, I saw a foreign movie starting from when I was about 14 years old so at that point for two years I was aware of foreign movies I was certainly aware of classic movies and they had recommended movies to me and I'd gone to the Lee Theater and seen them and we had already seen Lawrence of Arabia which I just was floored by it was my idea of a great great movie And at that time, the two great movies that most people were aware of my age was like West Side Story and and Lawrence of Arabia. Those movies were about places and things that were exotic. They were all larger than life. Even a movie that I loved at that point, like Bravo or The Horse Soldiers, they're all larger than life. They are something that you don't know anything about that comes to you in that movie, mm-hmm. as well as all the Disney movies that we were growing up with. But I walk into that theater already liking the Beatles and have seen them on television and had an impression of them. So when the movie starts and they're running, is it George the Trips and Falls? But right, case, yeah, yeah, I think it is, yeah. They're coming towards you. It was so thrilling. And then within five minutes, this you were aware that this universe had been created by Richard Lester. And the universe and the energy of it and the style of it was as new as the Beatles and reflective of it as well as emphasizing the us versus them aspects of the world at that point, because this is just really when the generation gap is kicking in between the baby boomers and their parents. Mm -hmm. And there's like a scene in the movie where they want to open the windows and this guy says, you can't. He says, we won the war for you. And, you know, (laughs) all that stuff. Look, mister, we pay for our seats too, you know. I travel on this train regularly, twice a week. Knock it off, Paul. You can't win with his sword. After all, it's his train, isn't it, mister? And don't take that turn with me, young man. I fought the war for your sword. 
I bet you saw year one. And was very clearly two generations. So I was so sympathetic to it and so involved in it and so swept up in it. And the scene, they're looking for Paul's father and they find him and they put him in a cage in the baggage car. And they're playing cards and they're talking and all of a sudden John's got a harmonica and they start singing I Should Have Known Better with a Girl Like You. And it's just so thrilling. And the song coming out of life, you know what I mean? It isn't like they're standing on a stage. They just start singing it, okay? All of a sudden, these girls appear and their instruments appear, and it's so infectious, and the train is bouncing back and forth, and at a certain point, the camera starts dancing along with the Beatles, up and down, back and forth. And it was a breaking of the fourth wall, which now I know what it is. But then it was, the, nothing can resist the Beatles. And as the movie went on, the energy of the movie so matched the music, it illustrated the music. And I was so taken with it that at the end of the movie, when the helicopter flies away and they're in it, and the screen starts black, and then as they raise up, it's like the Beatles ascending into heaven, and the leaflets being thrown, the pictures being thrown out, I was just floored by this. I went home, walked home, very excited, and my parents said to me something like, how is your Beatle movie, you know, kind of <laughs> little condescending. And I stopped and thought about it, because I, it was fantastic, and I said, oh, it was great, and then I said, I think it was really, really well-directed. And I had never expressed that thought before as something independent, but it had occurred to me during the movie that someone had liked the Beatles too and interpreted and made it, that there was a, someone behind it. And I guess that's when it first occurred to me that I would like to see more of this. I would like to do this. Yeah. So that was how it happened for me. So it was the movie, since I didn't right away react like I want to be a musician, I didn't play drums or guitar or anything, but I was interested in movies. That was the big step. Had you ever met Richard Lester? Yes. Yeah. Before that, he had done It's Trad Dad, which is a little jazz movie, and he had done a short called Running, Jumping, Standing Still, which yes. the Beatles had loved. And if you see in the movie, the sequence where they're on the uh, field to Camp Buy Me Love and they're running around, it's all jump cut. That's pretty much running, jumping, standing still. It's what the Beatles had responded to. It was a very, very shrewd guess by the, by the producers and a wonderful combination of people in the making of the movie. So did you feel that help had sort of gone back to the more exotic world of the films that you'd seen before Hard Day's Night? It wasn't the four ordinary guys who you thought, wow, I could be like that. Well, by then, the Beatles persona had pretty much because Hard Day's Night set the personas in our mind. The Beatles, Beatles persona was more prevalent. I think at the time when I saw the movie, I liked it. And I liked the, I don't think I liked it as much as Hard Day's Night, but I liked the parts that were more 
beetly unless this sort of strange James Bondian kind of surprise. Right. And it was only till I started doing trailers from hell that it, and I did that movie that I realized how ultimately disappointing it is compared to Hard Day's Night because of the ring on Ringo and all that stuff, which is amusing. But there wasn't that intimacy with the Beatles that the first one had, although the songs are great and the song sequences are great. I did like it. I got to ask you, I believe that Martin Scorsese uh, is a huge fan of Magical Mystery Tour as a film. Has he ever gone and told you why that is? Uh, no. And I remember <laughs> coming out, I think when it came out, there was no access to it. It didn't play in theaters right away. And they screened it at a, at the Rock Theater that I was working at, at the Fillmore East. And so I think we all liked it. I mean, as time has gone on, it doesn't hold up as much. Right. It's certainly the music. Again, the music is great. You know, Its execution is not up to the aspirations of the music. I think Martin Scorsese had said that he liked something about its experimental nature. And certainly when I think his short films... Uh, I'm not sure if they were made for while he was still in university, but they came out on DVD a few years ago. And all of a sudden I thought, well, I don't really like Magical Mystery Tour, but I see the influence. I can see what it maybe did to his way of thinking as a short filmmaker. His short films preceded Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, um, okay. It's only you, Murray, which is his NYU project. I think Marty graduated from NYU probably about 63 or 64. And then he made, after that, he made The Big Shave. And then by the time he was teaching at NYU, which is where I first encountered him, I think he was, had started work on Who's That Knocking at My Door? And right. that movie was produced by the head of the NYU film school, Haig Mnugin, who was Marty's mentor. And I guess Haig helped Marty raise the money or however it was. And so that was a movie they put picked up and put down a couple of times as they got more trying to get distribution, et cetera. Not to shift gears, but I just wanted to touch on something when you talk about working at the Fillmore, there's something interesting that I've always found from a social perspective. It's like growing up in the 80s and 90s and getting to see like a lot of bands, myself and bars, you know, like Nirvana and Soundgarden and the Red Hot Chili Peppers when they were starting up and all these bands. At that time, we never really thought there was anything, you know, significant going on. We were just going to see bands. What I want to ask you is that when you had your whole experience of working at the film or with so many monumental bands, what you've talked about being able to see, I mean, I would kill to see just one night of what yeah. you've seen. You know, what I want to ask you is that at that time, and not just in music, but also in your education in film, did you really realize at that time that that was really something significant, like that was monumental, or was it just another night at the film or another night going to see a foreign film, like a Fellini film? or something well at the time there was a unification of a generation through the music that we liked and through the films that we liked and it, those things were driving the culture there is nothing now that really drives the culture in the same way maybe right. you can say that that's the internet has that role as an mm -hmm. entity but mm -hmm. there was this change in the culture that was going on there was part and parcel of the six, 60s that was part of that responding to as teenagers as baby boomers. so I was born in 1948 so when the Beatles appeared in 64 on TV I was 16 so at a very vulnerable age to 
influences. And as I saw all those movies, I was feeling that they were, what we were experiencing was different than what my parents had experienced. And the music was more so, you know, it was just so expressive of our generation because it was the first music that was being written by the people who were performing it. Right. And that made a big difference. You became involved in it and you had a certain, the, the access to it was narrower in the sense that if you wanted to see a new band, they would often appear on the Ed Sullivan show, which was right. where the Beatles appeared. And you'd see these bands and everyone tuned into the same radio station. So, for instance, American Graffiti is a perfect example of the unification of a generation behind music because they're all listening to the same show as their lives go on. And that's a beautiful illustration of that. Answer the phone, dummy. Pinky's Pizza. Uh, yeah, listen, you got any more of those secret agent spy scopes? Hip right on the stethoscope. No, no, the secret agent spy scope, man. That pulls in the moon, the stars, the planets, and the satellites, and the spacemen. You must have the wrong number, partner. So this is all coming together, and as someone interested in music, you start looking forward to each band's new albums as they come along, and all of a sudden you start hearing about these new bands that are coming on what was, don't forget, FM radio was just starting. FM radio really didn't exist as a format till like 66 or so, 67. So all of that excitement is going on. When we were working at the be a new Stones album, a new Beatles record, uh, uh, you'd hear about a group in San Francisco, and that would be the Jefferson Airplane. So when the Fillmore East opened, I went opening night, and I saw opening act was Albert King. So I was just oh, off man. <laughs> becoming aware of blues. I really wasn't aware of blues as a separate entity and what it was. Right. until I heard the Rolling Stones and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. So right. my way to that was through a white interpretation. I think by the time the Fillmore opened, I had already seen B.B. King play. And right. he was so thrilling. And I had heard he was a great guitar player, but what I was not prepared for was what a brilliant song was. And what he was saying, the way he sang and stuff, was not anything I had had exposure to. So right. opening night to Fillmore, you have Albert King, then the second act was Tim Buckley, who was Jeffrey's dad. And Tim Buckley had an album out at that point, which was being played a little bit on FM radio. And the headliner was Big Brother and the Holding Company. But Janice, who I'd seen twice before that, and so it was exciting to see that. And then three weeks later, I think I, I saw the Jefferson Airplane there and then the doors. And right. then, you know, at that point, I had already heard Hendrick because he had been, this is 68. So Hendrix had appeared on the radio in the summer of 67. And I had heard about him because I was working at a radio station in college and I was reading Billboard magazine and there was a whole thing about his first single, Hey Joe. So right. it was a, an excitement of all these new things happening. Right. And so right. when you became, so that was just in the air and that was what was expected. And now when we look at it, it's a very compressed period. The time in real time, like that was just what was going on and everyone paying right. attention to the same thing. So right. when I started working there, there were many, many like-minded individuals working at the Fillmore. You didn't pursue that job because it was a 
good job. You want for you know that it's not like you were going to be a delivery guy or or no. whatever. It was, I mean, it was I, a labor labor love. Yes, everyone tried to get those jobs, and when I stumbled into it, once you were there, you said, "I'm not going to give this job up for anything." No. And no. so no. everyone was a rock fan. So there was much much discussion right. about the music. The level of bands was so high that you right. could be critical of Creedence Clearwater by saying, "Well, they just played the same." set each <laughs> you know and who wouldn't die to see that set absolutely absolutely we, Not, we said like the, the live edge show Saturday was pretty good but it's essentially note for note the same thing and so there was this push for people who were even greater and to transcend it in a live situation I don't know if uh, that answers question. No, no, I, I get it totally. And there's one thing, uh, not to go forward, but for example, in Get Crazy, all the live acts are so diverse. You know, like you start with, you know, the blues. And right. for a lot of people that would see Get Crazy, they would say, well, you know, these bands would never play together, like such a wide range of, of different acts, right? But the reality is, like you're saying, back of the Fillmore, you did get such a wide range of acts that all played together in one night. It's an interesting that you say that, because when we preview the movie with an audience they complained about the very thing that you just said the cards came out and said well this couldn't happen because these right. people would never play together and right. by then we're in the 80s so the th one of the things that killed the Fillmore East was the fact that Bill Graham was not able anymore to book those kinds of shows to book a show where 10 years after opened, uh, the Staple Singers were on second and oh. Big Brother was holding company, was on headline. Oh. Or here's a show, here's a show where you have the headliner is Neil Young and Crazy Horse. The second band supporting them is the Steve Miller Band. Wow. And the opening band is Miles Davis with the Bitches Brew Orchestra. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's 550. And I think so, it was actually Lollapalooza that tried to kind of cop on what Bill Graham was doing, too, when they did the yeah. Lollapalooza tours in the 90s with all the diversity. Like, they were trying to go back to that time, and I don't think it was a possibility of going back. The but, New Orleans Jazz Fest is like that. Right. And, and to some degree, Coachella is within a narrower range. Right. But, I mean, I would have killed just to been able to see, like, the diversity back then. It's just... Oh, it's yeah. Just, thing about it was is that we were so involved in the music and so involved in that particular world like when we saw the Almond Brothers for the first time They were the opening band. Ahead of them was another band called Lollop called Appaloosa. And the headliner was Blood, Sweat and Tears. Wow. Uh, who at that time had big hit records and right. stuff. The Almonds could only play for 25 minutes, but they were so impressive. And right. from their sound check, they were so great. We all wrote up a petition for to Bill and gave it to Bill Graham, half a joke, half a real thing, like, bring these guys back, bring these guys back. Right. And he brought them back about eight weeks later. And so the show then was, do you remember an LA group called Love? Yeah, oh, yeah, was, of course, Arthur Lee, yeah. Yeah, My Little Red Book and Alone yeah, Again yeah. Or. Yeah. yeah, so they were the opening band. The Almond Brothers were second on the bill and the headliner was The Grateful Dead. And so the Late Show would start at 11.30. So they played all night. 
And, you know, when you get in a situation like that, too, I find that, like you were talking about the level of musicianship, you know, like everyone had such high standards. But when you get a band like the Almonds that are just, like, killing it, and then they're like, okay, top that. And then the yeah. next band actually yeah. has to be on their A-game because the guys, you know, before them just smoked them. And also you're in a concert hall situation where the people who worked there had come right out of and the people who set up the film Maurice in terms of the crew and had come out of NYU theater school because the distance between the Fillmore East and the NYU theater school was six inches. Wow. They were right next door to each other in a quirk of history. Wow. And so when they started taking apart the uh, old Yiddish theater, which was the Lowe's Commodore, and making it into a rock theater, naturally the theater students are like coming next door going, what's going on, and getting jobs there. The ushers and the stage crew were, a lot of us were at NYU Film School because they had put up a sign saying that they were looking for ushers, and they put that up in the front of the theater and in one of the dorms at NYU. So that's why you had this rush of NYU kids. And so the stage crew itself, we were a little bit insufferable, but it was <laughs> it was made up of theater students, right. playwrights, uh, and student filmmakers, and we all had opinions. And so as we bonded as a group and experienced all these bands, our standards grew. And there right. were definitely bands that we loved and bands that we loathed. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was gonna say it makes perfect sense now what you're saying when you look at Get Crazy at the beginning when Max is coming in on the flying spaceship. 15 years in this place and I still can't get a crew to do it right. Because right. that's like a total theater thing. You know, like you can just see theater students building the props and setting that all up. I mean, so I'm like, yeah, okay, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Yeah, and the manager of the theater who ran it for Bill Graham had been to Carnegie Mellon Theater School. And Joshua White, who ran the Joshua Light Show, had also met been to Carnegie Mellon. So there was these people who had had an educational experience about classical theater were now being able to express that in a rock and roll setting. And wow. Bill Graham's big decision was whether he was gonna move into New York and have rock theater, and but it was gonna be theatrical. That was a huge decision because it had only been dance hall stuff before that. The Fillmore West was a dance hall, you know? <laughs> there wasn't a ordered presentation of a group in a, there was like they would announce them, but it wasn't as formal an announcement. I'm not making it really formal, but like when you walked in the Fillmore East and you saw, right. and you were coming in through the lobby, straight ahead on the light show screen would be bathed in one color. There'd be one light show effect and there'd be a slide that said, Welcome to the Fillmore East and Joshua Light Show under it. It was like a visual playbill. Right. And in fact, for many years, he gave out playbills. That's how much it was still in the traditional wow. system. Wow. So then when the show was about to start and Bill or whoever was going to announce the first band or a band would come on, they'd say the name of the band. The band's name would appear on the screen. As the band started playing and the light show started going, it would go away. And at the end of, the, of their act, as they went off the stage, their name would appear. And then when they came back for an encore, name would come on again. So there was 
a sense of structure to the evening and a presentation, right. which right. made for the bands to realize that being in New York, that was the height of the touring, and that was the best sound and the best lighting. You were playing the big top. Now, this might sound like a stupid question, but when everybody was trying to bring such a theatrical presentation to all of it, did they ever consider like filming any of this for like archival purposes or like documenting any of it on film? Well, there's Amelie Rothschild's book of uh, called, I think it's called Welcome to Film Maurice, which is part of her hundreds of photos that she took mm-hmm. uh, to film more. And it's, those are the photos that you see everywhere. And then Amelie got a hold of an early video camera and filmed Jimi Hendrix on New Year's Eve. The Late Show, him doing his whole set with the band of Gypsies. Is that, so is that, that the stuff that just came out? I think I think that just came out recently. I bought it about 15 years ago as a bootleg. I was in a record store in the West Village, and I hear, you know, a band of Gypsies playing, and oh, I know this show. I was at this show, and now I'm looking through records. And I look up at the TV set, and so I go up to the desk, and I say, is this the film Maurice, 1969, 1970, on New Year's Eve? And the guy's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, I said, I was there, and it was a bootleg of Amelie's tape. Then it wasn't even the whole show on that bootleg. Then a couple of years later, they put it out on VHS as a documentary where people talking about Hendrix. And now it's out on DVD. You can get it with the documentary and you can get the whole show on the same DVD. Is, is that the one with the Cabot interviews on it? No, this one is just called Jimi Hendrix Live at the Fillmore, I think. Okay, because uh, I think there's a documentary called, just called Jimi Hendrix, because I've seen it before, the one when he's on the Dick Cavett show and he's being interviewed. Right. Is, is that the one where yeah. he's, he's playing the acoustic version of uh, Hear My Trainer Coming? Is that that documentary? Yet another Hendrix documentary. There's a bunch of them. And then there's like Rainbow Bridge and some other stuff, which is the concert in Hawaii that he did. Now, there was also a filming of a TV show, which you can see on YouTube, called Welcome to the Film Maurice, which was done for PBS. And it's very interesting because you can see that it has all of us in it who worked there, setting up the show and changing the marquee and so forth. And then a part of a show, and it's The Birds and Van Morrison, etc. Wow. So that one for PBS. There was a movie called Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying These Things About Me with yep. Dustin Hoffman. Yep. And they filmed the scene at the Fillmore for that. That was about it that I know of. There's probably more. Every once in a while you see a little piece of film show up which was shot there from a news you know, right. show. But like you were saying about things being in the vaults in the past, things coming out, you'll never know. Maybe maybe there were other people there that had shot stuff and suddenly things come out. Because like, now like they're finding film prints of things like, for example, like that Metropolis print that they found down in South America and they thought it was long gone. You uh-huh. never know where things just come up out of nowhere again and oh my god you know we suddenly have footage or something this monumental well it's not quite on the level of metropolis but my student film was shot in the film war east and oh, wow. it's about the rise and fall of a rock star in one week and i put together the star of it was one of the guys on the stage crew who helped me write it his name is john ford noonan and actually john just passed away about four days ago oh, five days oh, ago sorry and so bill Graham let me use the theater 
to film in for no cost. And members of the crew chipped in to help me connect the cables for the lighting and the Joshua Light Show appear in it. I put together a band to back this thing. And so it was all filmed in the Fillmore. So you can see the place. It's not a famous band or anything, but that was really real. I will forever be in Bill's debt for letting me do that. That's something that's amazing for me on the other side of the world. I mean, I've heard all these great albums recorded at the Fillmore East or the Fillmore West for that matter. I mean, we've got you know, venues here in Melbourne that we prize and treasure, but there seems to be something magical about yes. the Fillmore above anything else that I've heard of around the world. Well, the sound system was state of the art, was so far ahead of what had happened before. Now, think about this. When the Beatles played Shea Stadium, that's uh, now we're talking 66 or so. Right. All the Beatle tour stuff, they either had a tiny PA on stage or they pumped the Beatles through the sound system that they announced the baseball games with. Wow. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're talking like the Dark Ages. Right. And all of a sudden you have a theatrical presentation with, that needs a sound system. And all these people who know about theater start trying to get an idea. How do you do a sound system for a live rock band? And right. before that, there was no formal way. There was knowledge about it. And people had done it in Fillmore West. But now these theater geeks started arranging how it would sound along with people who had just started to do rock tours. So they really took the concept of it and refined it and refined it. And they were the first ones to actually put theater, put speakers up in the air so that they would go to aim directly at the balcony. No one had ever thought of this before. You know, now it's every concert you go to. The, there was, you know, speakers yeah. up high and speakers down low. And they started tuning the sound system which no one had ever done for frequencies and then as they got more and more into it they started tuning the theater and putting up padding and checking the theater for pink noise and white noise and so mm -hmm. forth so when bands played there it would sound as good as it was ever going to sound with great right. monitors it's only 2700 seats so the feedback was great you know in terms of being right by the audience right. you were presented the way you looked and everything you had no worries you were gonna look as good as you were so right. that was everything was right for doing a great performance and you played four times in one weekend. So you had a Friday night early show, which was always the one where they were the most tense and excited. Then there'd be Friday night late show, which was usually really, really good because everyone was loose by now and they'd been on the stage. The Saturday night early show was hungover show because everyone was still waking. <laughs> right. But right. the Saturday night late show was when everyone cut loose because there was no curfew. Once you're on the late show, you could play as long right. as you want. And there was no sense of, well, the second group can't play longer than that because uh, the headline, none of that existed yet. Wow. Here's a question for you that I'm, I, I'm not sure about, but it's maybe it's a stretch. But in Get Crazy, was it your decision to cast Alan Garfield? Because no. I, okay, <laughs> I just wondered, because now I look at him and it seems to me like he's almost like the representation of Bill Graham. You know, I remember looking at him from the conversation, from Coppola's conversation. And, you know, I, so many films I've seen him as the, the little powerhouse. To me, he really held the role as Max. I just loved him in that. You know, this is so much later, I can just say what really happened. Almost every role of an actor in there was an argument with the producers. The, wow. The producer 
basically just kept, uh, it was his goal to challenge me, it felt like, over and over again. And who I wanted to play him, Bill, was Jerry Orbach. Wow. Now, you know, Jerry yeah. on Law and Order, right? Right. Yeah. He looks exactly like Bill. He's from the theater, you know. Right. He was a right. song and dance man. That's who I wanted. And for instance, the the little right uh, who gets Lou Reed sings to at the end, right? And Tracy did a really good job. But my first choice was Mariska Hargitay. Okay. who is now the star of, of Law & Order SVU. She was a young actress. She was 18 years old. She came in in red. She was... Uh, so you, you weren't... So uh, I was glad you like, uh, tried to get Alan to be as much like Bill as I remembered. He didn't quite get there, but it's okay. How did Lou Reed come into it? Ain't got all day. Hey, man, it's dark out there. What's going on? Night. Night. What time is it? Twenty to twelve. Twenty to twelve. I've got a show to do. Step on it. The character of Auden. Yeah. Now I'm trying to think. I thought there was only a couple people that can do it. Obviously, Dylan was not going to do it. So I tried to think of someone who had that kind of stature. And I right. think that maybe Lou Reed was the first choice. He was really the first rocker to sign on. We flew to New York to meet with him, and we took him out to lunch to the Russian Tea Room and told him about the story of the film. It was him and his wife of the time, Sylvia Morales. Mm -hmm. And I think Lou was impressed that I was so aware of his music, and we talked a lot about the Blue Mask. And, you know, I mentioned the early stuff, but he was really impressed how much I knew about his music. It was not just the hits like Walk in the Wilds. It was all the right. difficult music. Right, everything, done. yeah. I think he said yes at lunch, and then we flew to Chicago to meet with our first choice for King Blues. You guys know this? No, I don't no. know this story. No. The first choice for King Blues was Muddy Waters. <laughs> Gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born You got a boy child coming Gonna be a son of a gun Oh, wow. I know. And, <laughs> and the last choice. <laughs> and we met Muddy at the Chicago airport. Because, and he came walking towards us, and he was wearing these sort of golf pants, uh, these brown acrylic golf pants, and a Hawaiian shirt. And he gave off such a vibe. I mean, people didn't know who he was, but they knew he was somebody. And we sat down, I think his daughter was with him, and his daughter and I and us, we talked, and Muddy hadn't read the script, but we told him the story and what we were trying to do with the character of King Blues and put a character in there in which all rock and roll comes from. That's why the, everybody does Hoochie Coochie Man. That's the point. And uh, at the end of the conversation, he looked at me and he looked at his daughter and he said, I believe this young man is telling the truth and I'd like to do this movie. So he was signed up to do the movie and then he had developed, uh, his heart trouble got worse. So he had to bow out. And that's how we got the guy that we got. And the parts that were the hardest to cast was Captain Cloud, 
We tried to get Dr. John to do it, a bunch of different people, but that didn't work. And that's when we came up with the idea of one of the guys from Flo and Eddie. I don't remember who right. recommended it, but uh, Howard was perfect. Yeah, and he's great in that. Howard was the Nada band. Right, the right. Nada. And yeah. where I got the idea from that was there was a really good nightclub in New York on 12th Street and 3rd Avenue, somewhere around there. And that's where a lot of bands played. They had a Christmas show every year where all the locals would come and do songs. And there was a lot of women who got together and did covers of great songs. And they formed together as a group so they could sing their favorite songs. And it was so much fun watching them. That's where I got the idea of them being a band that existed and them having a pet that they kept with them on a chain yep. and that yep. was Iggy Pop. And that was, of course, who we got. Yeah. Here's who we offered it to. We offered it to the B-52s. They said no. To the Roche sisters, they said no. I think we offered it to Joan Jett. Was she around then? Yes. Almost every female singer said no until we saw a video of Lori Eastside. who at that time was a backup singer and a sing dancer with Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Right. And she projected so much personality that she got the part and then everyone else was cast out of LA musicians who were playing in different bands. Yeah, it was funny because like when you see Decline of the Western Civilization, like the first one with fear in that, and you see like yeah. Lee Ving, man, like, you know, that guy's undeniable. And he's like been a character actor in so many different films, like dudes. Right. Yeah, I, I've actually had the opportunity to meet him and the guy's a sweetheart, he's a great guy. Just to sort of make another filmic connection, you mentioned that you tried to get the B-52s forget crazy yeah. and but it looks like they appeared with Lou Reed and with Alan Garfield in a film that I think came a couple of years early that was Paul Simon's Paul One Simon Trick Pony and Blair Brown One Trick Pony a film from Warner Brothers Opens Friday at the Uptown Theater in 35mm Dolby Stereo. Oh, was that before Get Crazy or That after? was 1980, yeah, yeah. I remember getting the record when that came out, uh -huh. absolutely playing it to death. I didn't get to see the film until many years later, and to be honest with you, I'm still not sold on it as a great film. I know that there's an honest story in there to be told. I remember uh, seeing it, but I don't remember anything about it. It was a story about the working life of a musician as Paul Simon saw it, so there's maybe that level of honesty but i think you know as a script writer he's uh -huh. a fantastic songwriter i wanted to actually sort of change tack a little bit about uh, sure, uh, right. a little bit go talk about a couple of films that i know that you've spoken about on trailers from hell well actually one in trailers from hell and one film that you've spoken about in your own sort of personal biography so i think it's often been said that the girl can't help it is one of the first rock and roll films if not the right. first rock and roll film And it was on my list of shame. I actually sort of only watched it for the first time maybe about a month ago. Oh. Uh, so my bad, but I finally got around to it. 
And I'm wondering, does it really qualify as a rock and roll film? We can't sort of underestimate the importance of having people like, you know, Little Richard and Eddie Cochran, you know, exposed at a time to the cinema audience when, you know, it would have otherwise sort of been hard for them. And yet, when watching that film, it's almost like the torch song wins the day and the values are still your parents conservative values and rock and roll is still sort of seen as something trivial which oh, yeah. i guess it, it well, would be for many years to come well yet the real i mean frank tashlin who is a great director mm. he's of a different generation and in a way since he was a not just as as a director he was a, an observer of the social scene he always was a a satirist of what was going on and you can see that in his jerry lewis movies and you could see that in his cartoons, which he was a director of cartoons for Warner Brothers, for Looney Tunes. Hence his uh, usage of gags and stuff that were cartoon-like and bringing that over into, into movies. Uh, so in a way, he actually has a kind of love-hate relationship with music. I think he liked the anarchy of it and the, and the fun of it, but I don't think he bought it as something worthy of the culture that he represented. Mm. I don't think there's any, and I can be corrected about this, I don't think there's any music movie of that particular era. Mm. You know, you're talking about the 50s into the early 60s that in any way presents the music as it was. You know, if you look at all those AIP type movies like yeah. Rock All Night and all yeah. of that, everyone watching the bands is sitting at tables in a night and, yep. and, and like what looks like prom dresses with no reaction. You know, right. the biggest reaction I think you see in a movie now that I think about it is High School Confidential. When Jerry Lee Lewis arrives at the high school, which was one of the inspirations for rock and roll high school, and everyone's dancing around them. But there was none of that. If they presented the artist, they presented them in the most sterile possible way because they didn't know better. They were taking it from TV variety shows and the fans were dead on their feet. You know, <laughs> just no sense of it. Obviously, what I, I liked Girl Can't Help, and I liked it's playing with the form. The beginning of it where it stretches it at the cinemascope. And uh, and I think I, I, I liked how he shot the music. It was so imaginative. Julie London. You know, singing Crime Your River, Joey Ramone uh, singing I Want You Around. I want you around. And if you look at them side by side, there's many of the same jokes and many of the same ideas. And then later on, I did Shake, Rattle and Rock and Renee Zellweger's. There's a whole dance and thing to um, The Girl Can't Help It as my homage to it. So um, those were the kinds of movies that were around. And Rock and Roll High School is essentially a remake of Shake, Rattle and Rock which is the the kids who want rock and roll, the school hates the music, and it ends up in a trial where they put the rock and roll on trial. So when I did the version of Shake, Rattle, and Rock that I did in 1995, I basically lifted the entire plot. It's a closer homage than Rock and Roll High School was. The other film I sort of wanted to get uh, some more thoughts from you, and this is one that you mentioned, you, I think you devoted like a whole 
segment to your love of the who and your biography videos and i was so thrilled to see you uh, bring out a copy of the kids are all right uh, roger from oz what's the, what's the next song you're gonna do my generation your generation yeah well, i can really identify with that because i really identify with these guys i dig them and this is a <laughs> which is a film I've seen more times yeah. than I care to remember and was actually even you know, privileged to have seen it on the big screen, even got to see it at a, yeah. at a revival house here in Melbourne. And yet it's far from being your conventional documentary. There's no narration. There's yeah. no sense of telling a story from start to finish. They go from this video clip to that video clip to a bit of uh, an interview here and... Keith Moon doing being whipped by a dominatrix there, and yet you come out and you really get an idea of what the Who were all about and who they were, which may not have been possible if it had been a more conventional documentary. So, just want to get your some of your thoughts about the kids are all right, and could that have been made as a conventional I, documentary? Yeah, I saw that very early on because I think Rod, I think New World Pictures distributed it. And so I saw an early uh, screening of it, and I got to know Jeff Stein, who directed it. And Jeff became a really great rock video director. He's one of the top video directors of the 80s. I love the fact that there's no narration or anything like that. And I've shown it to my kids a lot. They are the Smothers Brothers. Yep. It's holistic. They were like nine, 10 years old. Thought it was hilarious. He said, I'm uh, Roger from Oz and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I think that also the concert presentations of Keith Moon are really powerful because now we know it's the last time we would ever see Keith Moon. Right. And I thought a Jeff film, the Won't Get Again and Bob O'Reilly, really exciting and, not, and much, much more exciting cynic and, and showing of love for rock. And you usually find is something shot on a soundstage, you know. Those feel like live performances. Right. And the intensity is there. And Jeff had grown up in the New York area and he had been a, a, someone who had come to the film Maurice. He was at the film Maurice the night that the theater caught fire during the Who's first show of Tommy. He was in that audience. Wow. Uh, and so Jeff and I talked about it. One thing I find interesting with music movies is that in the 80s, you know, I wouldn't officially call them grindhouses, but I remember when a lot of the, the repertoire cinemas would have the all-nighters on the weekends on Friday and Saturday nights. And it was almost like they were trying to replicate, like, you know, what went on at the Fillmore because we'd get to see the song remains the same. And then we'd get to see maybe Tommy or the kids are all right. Or they would show, yeah. uh, you know, all that, like all night would be like three or four music films. And then they'd show Enter the Dragon, you know, like at about 4 a.m. Yeah. But, but, but it's just this whole thing about where it's almost like they were trying to replicate that whole experience, you know, with the music movies. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. A film that we spoke about on the show earlier on this year was The Doors. And I'd successfully avoided actually watching the film till earlier on this oh, year. The, the Oliver the, Stone. Uh, Oliver Stone one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, look, you know, I grew up you know, being a big fan of the music of The Doors. And you know, I'd read No One Here Gets Out Alive. But I'd heard that you know the film sort of presented him very one-dimensionally and you know pretty much watching it the start of this year you know for the show made me think yeah all, all that i'd heard had been 
correct and you know jim was just presented as this drugged out inconsiderate asshole and there was none of the uh, the clever the witty guy that ray manzarek had always claimed him to be but one thing that you said in your trailers from hell discussion about it was that yeah. the concert sequences were magnificent and i think all of us on the show absolutely 100 percent agreement with that it was so just sort of like taking it from the doors to your own work do you find that preparing a concert sequence is a lot more difficult than anything else that you might have included in the movie so like say for instance you know any the um the concert sequence in rock and roll high school where you know, they actually get out to see the ramones or anything and get crazy it just looks like it'd be such incredibly hard work how, it how, is hard work and there's an intensity to it and i think in rock and roll high school even though i actually found my shot list there were camera moves that were indicated at certain parts of the song but mostly you were trying to capture what was happening in front of you and the audience was the ramones fans from i mean the audience had to pay to be in the movie that's all we could afford and in crazy I took my first AD to see Iggy at the Palladium, and I took the art department and some of the other crew members, and that's what the kind of energy I was trying to get. And my first AD had mostly done westerns. He had been the AD on The Wild Bunch. So uh, he started to understand the intensity of what I was trying to go for. And he said that he could definitely get the punks worked up into that kind of frenzy. Later on, as... I became a better at filming. For instance, uh, with I started doing Fame. I started designing. I had since it was not a concert situation necessarily. I started designing my music numbers and camera moves here and shooting it from multiple cameras. It's kind of like the way the Rocky. It's a difference between Rocky and Raging Bull. You know. In high school, it was more like Rocky, you know? It's like, here's the fight, and I'm going to shoot it from all these angles at once, and we'll cut it together. You know, in Raging Bull, there is none of that. There is every camera move counts, especially in doing fame, where every episode, and I did like 14 of them, there would be three or four music numbers. I was trying to express the story within the song, okay? And in Rock and Roll High School, the story within the song was something as simple as I don't want to be a pinhead, nor a D-U-M-B, you know, uh, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. But later on, if you look at my fame episodes, there are elaborate storylines that are tell the story of the song. Mm. Dancings, I did a whole tribute to cowboy movies and westerns through Dan. So as moving past that, you get into the Temptations movie. It's going to open up on... I've got sunshine on a cloudy day. I'm Otis Williams. I got this singing group. Your voice knocks me out. Which is even more sophisticated because I learned that you don't want to stop the narrative to play the song. The narrative continues through the song. The, the best action movies are like a movie, like say French Connection, if there's an action scene, it continues the story and advances the story. And the music songs have to do that. There has to be a point of view and the dramatic action that is resolved or illustrated during the songs. And in the Temptations movie, just about every song, and there's like 30 of them, is storytelling. You see the relationship with the group on stage, what's going on in their lives, and then the challenge was, how do we get that across when the, the recorded version doesn't contain this drama? The recorded version was like, here's the best that we can see. 
So we actually, that's why we re-recorded some of the Temptation songs at great peril, because they're classics, to give it the edge of what was needed dramatically to tell the story. And Otis was okay with that? Oh, yes. Yeah. That was because the producer of the Temptations movie was uh, Suzanne DePass, who had worked at Motown, you know. So when we did I'm Losing You, we did it with more funk and more anger because we presented it in a situation where David Ruffin was basically telling the group, get lost. I don't want, I don't need you. you right. Know? So it needed that built in, you know, so the acting begins in the recording studio so that it ends up on the screen now. We did not change My Girl, you just can't. And the one place it kind of bumped was the song worked great is Ain't Too Proud to Beg, but Ain't Too Proud to Beg fades out and we used it as a live performance. So we had to, we tried adding a little musical ending on it so it felt like it ended. Uh, so we treated, we did about every possible way you could to present the music so that it helped advance the story. One part of that film that just absolutely blew me away and I, I'm thinking it was partly your visual style from maybe the few rock video clips that you'd gone and recorded in the 80s but your segment of them in the studio doing Papa Was a Rolling Stone It was the 3rd of September That day I'll always remember Yes I will Just thought yes, the visual you. flair on that just blew me away. That's so fantastic. I'm glad you point out because I I don't get to talk enough about that, and that is probably one of the best things I've ever directed. Um, when I look at it, it was always the centerpiece to the film once the script started moving along. And I remember the first time I heard the song, how floored I was by it, and how much I loved it over the years. And as the story of the band was coming along I realized that what the song is saying is about their lives and if it isn't a rock band or a, a group like that it's a basketball team or a baseball team it's when men go out away from their homes and live together and work together because it's a common goal and what they're doing can be interpreted as play, right? Mm. You mean you get paid to play basketball? You mean you get paid <laughs> to sing songs? And that bonding and that behavior was significant and what the movie is about. And so when we realized that and in getting that set up with NBC, NBC at that point had been extremely successful with their sweeps moves. And they always used to put on a mini series during sweeps and they were usually very elaborate effects driven ones that this organization did and they were magical or whatever it was. And this one was musical. And so when I was pitching it to them, I said, the songs are gonna be your effect sequences. And I wanna do a song in the center that is the big, effects sequence so to speak the one that is the most elaborate and i told them that i was going to do this whole song and have no dialogue that the song would tell the story and it'd be very special and when i did my shot list for it what we decided to do was throughout filming we would 
different pieces from certain scenes that would be in that. So if we were in a dressing room set, that's when I shot the stuff of David doing dressing room things. And it was something I had experimented with on Take Rattle and Rock was shooting dialogue instead of 24 frames a second, 12 frames a second and printing it twice. So you get that staccato effect. Right. And the abusive, you know, father, the abusive member of the band who was drunk all the time, arguing and stuff, but you didn't have to hear what he said. It looked very stylized, but you understood the anger and the angst of it. And in between that, it was a very specific interpretation of how that song is built. One of the things I like best in the great music biographies is when they explain the music to you and how they... A great example of that is the one about Brian Wilson. You come away understanding that music, and very, very often, you just see the music. The worst example is Jersey Boys. It's just the guys singing Four Seasons songs. There is no sense of how those songs are structured or what inspired them to make them. There's very little sense of that in um, the Freddie Mercury movie that's out now. Right, right. right. And yeah. so Pop Was a Rolling Stone was a way of putting together what that song meant to their lives and telling the story of Papa going bad and killing himself. You know, the story of um, Paul Williams. So it was a very conscious attempt to do a larger, longer narrative. And one of the great creative days of my life was I had sent all the footage to my editor. We were shooting in Pittsburgh and he had done different rough cuts. But he and I sat down at eight in the morning and we only had 13 days to edit this whole miniseries. And we sat down at eight in the morning and started working on Papa. And by, I don't think we got up till like, you know, seven or eight that night. And we cut the whole thing together, just focused on it. And when we were very nervous when we sent it over to NBC and they just loved it. They flipped over it. They thought it was amazing. And they kept telling other, you know, shows, do one, do like uh, when they did the show about the 70s, do a Papa's a Rolling Stone kind of thing. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of. That's awesome. Sorry, it was such a long-winded answer. No, no we love no, long-winded no, no. answers. <laughs> Actually, like when you just mentioned the Freddie Mercury film, is there anything that you've seen in recent years in terms of music movies that has really struck you, Alan? I love the documentary. Oh, he was an engineer and a producer for Atlantic Records. Dowd, Tom Dowd. Tom Dowd, yep. Okay. You know, he was the engineer on all the great Atlantic sides throughout the 50s into the 60s. And then he was the producer. He was the engineer on um, Cream's Disraeli Gears. And then he right. produced Oman Brothers Records and he produced Live at the Fillmore East and Layla. And his story, I thought, was fascinating. And I highly recommend the documentary about him. Mm-hmm. I like the one about Muscle Shoals. Yeah, we love that one. Yeah. I thought that the recent Queen one was very nothing. I mean, it was fine. It was just a straightforward telling of of the story, you know. Anything that Jonathan Demme was involved with had a great sense of two Neil Young things he did. Well, not the two Neil Young, but the one he did. Stop Making Sense. I've always loved that. Well, Stop Making Sense is the definitive concert film. I mean, that's one of the great ones along with The Last Waltz because they're filmmakers finding a way for the camera to help illuminate the music. And there's like a shot in Stop Making Sense during Burning Down the House that whips all around and just by what it focuses on makes you understand what is going on on that stage between the musicians. 
Scorsese always does that. You know, when you look at Scorsese's Rolling Bones, Shine a Light, just what the camera captured is going on between those members of that band tells you how the Rolling Stones music works when it's being played live. Get that DVD and look at uh, watch Hot Hot Hot, which is not a really well-known Stone song. It's about the fourth song in that right. concert. And you can see uh, the first couple songs are really good. It's the Stones. They can't screw up anymore. They're really good. But when Hot 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 comes on and about halfway during the first verse and Keith is doing that call and response of playing a lick and mix singing, you see it lock in. the look between Keith and Ron Wood and you can see them lock into yeah, this yeah. and they jump literally to a higher level as the chorus right. and from that chorus on you see that band at a whole at the level of greatness that they can achieve right. and when the song goes right into going down the line they don't stop they have reached that transcendent level right. that you want a band to reach and it's right. the transcendent of the Almonds live at the Film Maurice. It's the oh, yeah. transcendent of the Who at times live. Right. All what those you're bands. talking about, the transcendence, for me, the one footage that I've seen that to me captures that is Alvin Lee at Woodstock. I'm going home. Yes. There is an expression I use sometimes that for the length of the set, when a band reaches its potential, and then goes beyond it, I always say to my kids or whatever friends, they are the greatest band in the world right now. And it's a wonderful thing, a privilege to see that happen, you know, and it doesn't always happen. You know, Springsteen certainly has had that happen more than most people. The Zepp went on some of those cuts on that DVD that has their concerts and all that in it. The Who, when they did Tommy at the Phil Maurice, certainly saw it. That footage and, from the Isle of, of Isle of Wright when they do the Young Man's Blues. Yes. <laughs> Ain't got nothing in the world these days. That's just like, man, like they're not even there. That's what I always say. They're not even there. They're there, but they're not there. I've mentioned that before, places that that's one of the Transcendent Who films. Oh, yeah. I think if you look oh, yeah. at their performance in that, that's amazing. Uh, Santana at Woodstock. The performance at Woodstock that towers in a certain way because it is on the verge of madness. It's so intense. It's Joe Cocker. <laughs> him with the grease band at right. Woods doing a little help right. from my friend. Right. And it's basically one shot. He is so into what he's doing and so gone. At one point, he drops out of the frame. He's so insane. And, um, right. and the cameraman's right. like, where did he go? And he pops up into the frame. Right. 
we're speaking before about what you really loved about Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson film of right. a couple of years ago, was the fact that they focused on the music rather than Brian's creativity being a side issue to the story of you know uh, all the difficulties that he faced. Brian. I think you might have screwed up here. Really? Let me see. Well, you've got Lyle playing in D, and the rest of us are in A major. Yeah, that's right. How does that work? Two bass lines and two different keys? Well, it works in my head. It's all playing in my head, the orchestration, and the five vocal parts. I think it's going to work. Let's try it. Oh, no, Al, Al, here's how I want you to do it. Because, uh... So it's uh, the the first beat on the last bar of the intro. Boom, two, three, four. They decide to tell two stories from a short period of time rather than sort of like say right in two hours we're going to give you 40 years of the Beach Boys or 40 years of Brian Wilson we'll tell you two stories and weave in and out and some of the films that I've really thought have been successful about a band or a performer have been one that have focused on one story within their period of time so Backbeat from the early 90s was more about the relationship between John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe do you remember that film Alan? Yes yeah sometimes music movies are much better when they just keep it to a defined length of time because mm. the basic stories you know going back to the Doors movie it's always the same what's interesting is the rise and the discovery and then the successful and then there's the de degeneration and the fall right. you know right. that's why the Doors movies first half is a lot more fun than the second half there's also a certain goofiness in the doors movie like when they write light my fire it's as corny as <laughs> the writing was song in, in a classic hollywood musical i call it light my fire if i'm gonna compete with your stuff it better be about earth snakes or fire so. <laughs> i like it sounds like the birds though man but i, I like it i like it it's good Latin beat will do it some justice. Maybe put a, a couple Start long over, solos over, like uh, over. like Coltrane did on my favorite thing. Start over, man. <clears throat> yeah, A minor, B minor, it's jazz. Yeah, man, yeah. You know, George Gershwin were thinking of Rhapsody in Blue, you know. Yes. But it's goofy, but it's fun. But it's once he a, becomes a, a bad alcoholic, it's less interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. We've got a friend of the show who works as a script editor, and he's been telling us about this film, which they're still wanting to get the green light from, but it focuses on a story about Joe Strummer, who like was in the midst of the hurricane that was the clash, and you know, I think management went and told him and his girlfriend to just go away for a weekend and to get his head together because he was so frazzled by you right. know, the success of The Clash and the film that they're going to make is just about that weekend and that oh, to nice. me sounds so fascinating I'm thinking wow that'll be yeah. great it'll be, a, it'll be more of a character piece what's the name of the other guy Mick Jones yes yeah right right Mick Jones's relationship with the woman from The Slits Oh, are you up or no? No, uh, the guitar player. Yeah, I know who you're uh, talking about. Yes, yeah, she's written an excellent book called Music, 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 Close, 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 Boys, 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 something like that. Yep. I highly recommend her book. It's one of the best rock bios I've ever read, as is the one from Sleater Kinney, her book. She's an actress now.
Alan Port, Portlandia. On, Portlandia, um, you mean? What's yeah. her name from Portlandia? Yeah, uh, that's a really great book, uh, and oh. I hear that she has directed it, a pilot for a TV series based on it, and both of them are much, much more revealing about the emotions and what they went through than the majority of the rock bios. I mean, so many rock bios are bragging, you know, about the excess. The Rod Stewart one is that. Whereas the Keith Richards one, I like a lot because he explains what he heard in the music when he started and how long it took him to understand that it wasn't just the chords, it was the tuning. When he gets into the how the music is made stuff, it's very, very interesting. I enjoyed the Clapton one and the Pete Townsend one. I never realized what an insane workaholic Townsend was till I read his book, where it's like, you can understand why his life fell apart in a lot of ways because he was driving himself so hard. Mm. So yeah. Before we go, just on a side note, I just wanted to say I really, really wanted to thank you and Mr. Dante for the trailers from LB. Whether it's mine or not, here's my admission, guys. If I could do nothing else for the rest of my life, I would do trailers from hell every day. Hello, I'm Alan Arkush, and this is Trailers from Hell. Absolutely. Do you want me to go through the process a little bit? Please, absolutely. Well, how it works is this. I won't go into the history of it, because maybe you'll interview Joe, and he'll be able to do that. Okay, so once you're involved, and Joe has, has you on the list of people, he will give you a phone call, and he'll say, or send you an email, and say, okay, we're going to film in three weeks. And these are the two days we're filming on, and, and it's filmed in his house, in the living room. Okay. And, and we're in front of a green screen. You know, he'll say, pick five movies, and he used to send the list of all the movies that had been picked, but he doesn't do that anymore. But so anyway, pick five movies, and then those who know, we would often send an email back and say, pick the movies you want to do. It isn't always five. We would send back an email, great, is there anything that you need? Because he may have two Sidney Lament movies and needs a third to do a week of programming. Or right, right, right. There's a bunch of films that he, he has that have never been presented because they're odd and they don't fit into the programming idea. He needs to make up. The week out of it, right? You know right. how each week has a oh, theme. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that'll be the first thing, and they'll say, "Yeah, I need uh, this, or I'll need, you know, uh, I need another Mario Bava, or or another Jimmy Stewart, or whatever it is." So then I start thinking about what movies I'd like to do. And which one? Now, I often think about my favorite movies. So then the thing is, okay, so I'll write down the favorite movies and then I'll go on YouTube and try and find the trailers. Or I will have the DVD already and look at the trailer and see right. what it's like and see if it's suitable. Sometimes the trailers, if it's like a Hitchcock movie, he's going to talk the whole time. So for me, that's right. not that interesting. So you find the, the, the movies and you come up with a list of, I always try to have a classic movie, a more contemporary movie, an oddball movie, a variety of things. And lately I've been doing a lot of Brian De Palma movies because I find that it's easy to talk about them and there is so much critical back and forth about De Palma. People like, it, like him or hate him. So you pick the themes and then... The fun part happens. You start to read about the director and the movie. Now, I have a library of books about directors, so I start with that, and then you go online and find all the information, and then I take notes about, oh, that I didn't know that before, and I didn't know that Howard Hawks thought that Only Angels Have Wings was his most realistic movie. I went... <laughs> 
<laughs> there is yeah, not yeah. realistic about that movie. And I thought, right. well, that's interesting. And it's because he based it on some real people that existed. So now you're starting to get a theme. And uh, so in the case of Only Angels Have Wings, the theme is movies that are made in Hollywood, USA. They don't exist in the real world. You know, they right. exist in Hollywood. And I returned to that theme with different movies like I did The Letter with Betty Davis. It's another example of that kind of movie. Right. It, that is not Singapore. No. <laughs> that is not. Singapore. <laughs> right. It's as much Singapore as Rick's Cafe is Casablanca, you know. Right. But right. it is Casablanca. So I come up with a theme and start writing the intro present the theme in the intro and now i've got all these facts laid out these little bits of information try to establish some sort of pattern to it and read it alongside the trailer so that i see how it fits together and i go well that doesn't fit and this is way too long i gotta move this up so it seems like the footage matches what's going on so you kind of hone it that way the hardest for me is memorizing the intro. It just flies out of my head. And so Joe has set up now a teleprompter so right. we can actually can read our intros because the, right. some of myself get pretty intricate. Other people, it's very simple. But I really try then to make it so that when the trailer is going, I'm reading it off a sheet, right? And I practice it enough, I know where to pause right. so that the action can happen. So in a way... Very often, the ones that I do, you don't have to edit anything. You just slip it on there, you know, and it all works out. And it's just fun for me. It's three to five days to do one, and we do them for nothing. Right, right, right. Well, you know, like, this is really important to me because, like, I have a background in history. And to me, archivism is really, really important. Are you familiar with uh, the work of Studs Terkel? Uh, not really. He captured more verbal histories of people. You know, he would take a subject, like, for example, he did a book called Work, where he just talked about working, what it's like to work. And he got the perspectives of so many different people. Or he had, did a book called The Great War and talked about, you know, everyone involved in all the different countries and everything. And he had actually just had people's perspectives. Right. That's a very important thing when it comes to film from the 60s and 70s and 80s now, because I think a lot of things have been cast aside. And I think a lot of things have been just left to the wayside. And, and it's important to archive these things and to, to yeah, show the relevance. And, and exactly. And, and that's why when Larry Karasuski is just great at finding, you know, his taste is so wide ranging and what he's seen. He will very often put up films that nobody has seen or no one has thought about them that way. Right. And then once in a while, I'll, I'll realize, like I did when I did Goodfellas, I was shocked that no one had done Goodfellas yet. You know? Right. So I came up with the concept of it's a kind of film that if you come across it on cable, you're going to stop, watch five yourself. I'm just going to watch till he goes into the Copa. I want to see that shot that goes through the Copa kitchen. And then you go, right. then you end up watching the whole thing. I call those movies, movies of gravitational pull. <laughs> so that was, that was my theory. Right, one Goodfellas work, you know, right. and then when I I was also surprised that no one had done shampoo, and right. when I got into the reading about shampoo, I realized how unique the pre-production was on it, and how much of it Warren Beatty paid for, and how no one wanted to make that movie. So the tell the story of that movie became relatively easy. When I did the trailer for Shop Around the Corner, I was looking for a Lubitsch. Yep. Could Joe had already done To Be or Not to Be, and I couldn't find. 
trailers for some of my favorite Lubitsch movies, but I found when I saw the shop around the corner when it's one of those trailers where the actor talks to the camera, I decided I would make it my tribute to Lubitsch and tell as much as I could about what made him great and discuss what exactly was the Lubitsch touch and then let the scenes play between the actors and talk about how because the trailer has talking to the camera then it has a whole scene part of a right. scene and then right. at the end Lubitsch appears so it's the perfect trailer to discuss awesome. Lubitsch the Doris Day one the thrill of it all it's another one where Carl Reiner talks to the camera I wanted to talk about the cultural significance of Doris Day. And so you try to find themes, you know, and right, that's what makes right. it really, really fun for me. When you talked about gravitational pull, just for a quick second, I was going to say that one of mine is like The Grapes of Wrath, that whenever okay. that film comes on television, it's like, you got jury duty. I hope the jury can wait. I'm sitting down and watching this. I don't care. You know, it's just like, yeah. you know, I have to go through and watch that film, right? Doesn't matter where it picks up. I just have to sit down and watch it. You know, and that whole thing with Tom Joad at the end when Fonda's talking to his mother before oh. he leaves, man, I'm just cutting onions. I can't help it. You know, it's just, it just yeah. hits me. When, when he says, we're the people. Exactly. Wherever there's a hunger guy, I'll be there. And whenever somebody's getting yeah. beat up by a cop, I'll be there. I'm just like, oh man, I can't, I can't handle it. Yep. Yeah. For me, it's Sullivan's Travels. The Godfather oh, yeah. 2 is a very common one. Right. People right. get hung up. Oh, I just want to see it till Fredo dies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to see it till he realizes Johnny Ola is the villain, you know, that, yeah. whatever. One of my favorites of your trailers is actually one that you said was a shitty trailer, but I love how you explain it, and that was all that jazz because there was no yeah. way in that trailer that they could get into the surreal nature of the film. It's just more about the flashiness, the let's put on a show sort of element, which is precisely what the film is not exactly rallying yeah, I, against, but it's not what the film is all about. I, and I love that movie, and I had just read the biography of, of Bob Fosse. Mm. And in reading the biography, I realized how the movie was really every beat in his life. Sometimes I'll read a biography of, of, an, of a filmmaker, and right away I'll want to do a trailer from hell about it. And that's certainly where I'll find the stuff that I find fascinating. Like how many films the classic directors actually directed. I mean, Michael Curtiz, 200-something films, you know. Yeah. Roll Wall. That's why I did Wild Boys for the Road, because William Wellman directed so many movies in the early 30s. And I always right. liked Wild to the Road. So That's about it. What do you have anything in closing, Morris? I wanted to echo what Tim said. We're so immensely grateful that you've taken the time. And we've just really, really enjoyed this conversation about music and films. and. Immensely. And, you know, I, I have to say, Alan, that you've given us both a Christmas present here. And uh, I really, really want to thank you for just, you know, giving your time to us. I've always admired everything that you've been involved in right from the get go. Like I said, you know, being a kid in grade five and catching shit for that film and Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard. I mean, you know, and then coming back and seeing it later again, you know, and loving it. Seeing well, Rock and Roll High you. School at the drive in. And thank you so much. We really, really appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. And I think just keep track of uh, trailers from hell i got a couple more coming up the geisha boy the jerry lewis one is coming oh, wow. in uh, if you get netflix took a look at 
the series uh, called uh, The Lemony Snicket one, a series of unfortunate events. I read those books to my son when he was really, really young. And I was only saying to him today, oh, I'm still not up to the hostile hospital episodes, which I know. Were the That's ones the that, one I directed. directed yeah. And I directed a new series for uh, Netflix. that will be coming out in the spring. It's called Another Life. I'm going to keep my eyes open for that, definitely. And, guess- you know, on uh, on my Facebook page, the uh, Memories and Music, you know, Music and Memories, uh, Music and Stories. Yep, that's, that's also on That's Hell. something I wanted to yeah. point out to the listeners. If you go to trailersfromhell.com and look under Gurus or, or just do a search for Alan, then you'll get a link to not just his Trailers from Hell presentations, but also he's doing his biography, as it were, in multiple parts. I've not watched absolutely every episode, but I've watched about four or five of them. Okay, well, this is great, guys, talking to people around the world. And have a, have a great holiday. All the you best too. to you. Thank you, Alan. Thanks very much, Alan. Bye. You're listening to episode 59 of See Here Podcast. We'll be back in a moment to tell you what's happening next month. Again, our huge thanks to Alan Arkush for taking the time to speak to us here at Sea Here. Absolutely made our year. So, episode 60, which is coming up in January of 2019, we are going to start our sixth year off with another interview. This time we'll be speaking to drummer and director Skiz Sizik. He has released a film in 2018, a documentary called Ice Pick to the Moon. This is a documentary about a man who's been described as the crooner from hell, the Reverend Fred Lane. So this is cabaret music with a difference. Really looking forward to watching that and speaking to Skiz about the film. So that'll be coming up in January of 2019. And hopefully all three of us will be available for that show to speak to Skiz. Housekeeping stuff. If you want to join the Facebook group and start up some film music related discussions, then you can join us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here. That's S W H E A R. You can now listen to us on Stitcher and on Spotify, as well as subscribing to iTunes or downloading from the website seehere.podbean.com. All the usual sorts of stuff. I'm sure you know that if you've been listening to us for a while. If you happen to be listening to us for the first time because of our interview with Alan Arkosh, thank you. Welcome aboard. We hope that you choose to continue to listen and those are the ways that you can download us in the future should you choose to do so. So as the year comes to a close, I think I can speak for Tim and Bernie when I say that we've had a wonderful year. We've really enjoyed presenting these shows to you. We do that every year. However, I think this has been a particularly great year. We've had some fun with some unusual choices and some great interviews and we're going to continue with another couple of months of interviews before getting back to the usual sorts of review type shows that we do. 
do, I wish to quickly also thank anyone who was a co-presenter with us this year. So that goes out to Mike White, Professor Michael Benton and Kerry Fristo. Thanks all of you to joining us for the wonderful discussions that we had. Plus also huge thanks to anyone who granted us an interview for this year to talk about their film work. I'll probably open up the lines sometime in February to get suggestions for requests for films that we should discuss in 2019, bearing in mind that we still have one film from 2018 that was a request from Tyler Kennedy to speak about, so maybe we'll be covering that in March or April. And then we'll get into debt for the next round of requests. Thanks for your patience. Anyway, have a wonderful holiday season. Celebrate Christmas, Kwanzaa, Festivus. Hanukkah is already over at the time as I'm recording this, but happy Hanukkah for next year. So until we speak again in January 2019, have a wonderful time and look after each other. Be nice to each other. We'll speak to you next year. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.